The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com and have been produced into audio format by its authors. The following audio blog, titled the Family and Power was written and recorded by Jonathan Carrick on January 29, 2017. Faith and obedience are directly tied one to another in the law of God. In Deuteronomy 3.16 we read, Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God has commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Deuteronomy seventeen nineteen through 20 And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, that he not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Ephesians 6, 1-3 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first command with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Modern antinomianism has divorced God's blessing from obedience to his law. God does not change, Malachi 3, 6, and neither does his absolute law and the blessings which flow from obedience thereunto. The absoluteness of his law is derived from the absoluteness of his character. The word of God prescribed blessings to the family which honors family authority, parents, and upholds God's law. It is interesting to note the centrality of the family in biblical law, and most notably the power invested therein. Power is a blessing from God. The power of the biblical family is a direct result of obedience to God's law. It is one of the blessings which flows therefrom. In humanistic terms, power is fundamentally the ability to change. Power is change. Of course, change is not in terms of upholding God's law word, but in asserting the autonomy of man. The 20th century was a power struggle between the fascist West and the communist East. Fascism won the war of the century, and the result is the tyranny we experience today. Until we return to a biblical doctrine of power, such will be our condition. Biblical law vests the three basic powers of society in the family. Power, in the biblical sense, comes through faith and obedience. It's interesting to note, when we look at the institution of the family in antiquity, that any, quote, quote, power the family possessed was only in terms of ancestor worship. When the pagan family had any semblance of strength, it was only in terms of looking back at the dead. For this reason, the family 
For this reason, the pagan family had no vital function in society. It was easily overthrown because it was past bound and had no vision for the future. It is quite a shame that we fail today to realize how deeply embedded in the law structures of the West are the biblical laws with regard to the family. Perhaps even more unfortunate is that we have lost sight of the woman who accomplished the formalization of these biblical laws into the judicial codes which have reigned supreme over Western civilization for over 1,500 years. She became an orphan at the age of eight when her father, who was an animal trainer for the Roman circuses, died, and she was sold into prostitution. It was at the age of 15 that she accompanied a wealthy businessman in North Africa, where they became engaged in a dispute, and he abandoned her. Without provision and protection, Theodore became very ill. She was taken in by a Presbyterian couple who nourished her back to health and, more importantly, introduced her to the Christian faith. Several years later, Theodore became acquainted, fell in love, and married a young lawyer who was the nephew of the general of the Roman army. Shortly hereafter, the emperor died childless. He had, in order to prevent civil war, before his death named Theodore's father-in-law, Justin as emperor. After a short reign, Justin died and the emperorship became that of his nephew and heir, Justinian. Theodore thus became empress of the Roman Empire. When Justinian began a move toward total recodification of Roman law, Theodore took a leading role in directing the lawyers in order to ensure that the new Roman laws were in terms of the law of God. Not surprisingly, Theodora's basic concern was with family law. Theodora ensured that the scriptures and all they had to say about the family were written into the law structure of the empire. Before the Justinian Code, which was mainly developed by the Empress Theodora, the family had no legal standing in society. If the father died, the family would, very commonly, be tossed out into the street that very day. He could make a secret contract with a business comrade wherein all his possessions were alienated from his biological family. Or, he could leave his property to a concubine and his, illegit and his illegitimate children begotten by her. What Theodora required, by function of law, was that all sexual activity outside of marriage be prohibited and punished by law. The only heirs and owners of property were to be the legitimate family. This was directly in line with biblical law as given to Moses. This was the greatest legal revolution in the history of the world. All we see today in our courts, schools, and universities today is a conscious effort to undermine the work of Empress Theodora. Theodora recognized the importance of the family. For Theodora, power came from God and was invested in the family in three important ways. Control of these powers meant control of any society. We cannot accurately understand the objective of revolution if we do not recognize that all revolutionary forces aim at the destruction or seizure of these three basic powers. First, control of children. If you control the children of society, you control the future of a society. This was the reason for the public school, to give the state control of the future, children. But biblically, the future rests with covenant man and the covenant family. Education is thus one of the three basic powers in society. Control of the children means control of tomorrow's society. Second, control of property. 
In terms of biblical law, control of property rests squarely with the institution of the family. Through the work of Theodora, it became a part of the West's legal code. The father was not allowed to alienate his property from the legitimate children in his wife. The property did not become the states upon the death of the father, but instead the families. If control of the future children and wealth, property, the means of production, were not enough, God also endowed the family with a third and closely related power, inheritance. The scripture gives us laws of inheritance. The eldest godly son receives a double portion of the inheritance, meaning that it is his responsibility to provide for his parents until life's end, and also to be of assistance to others in the family in the case of need. Proverbs 13.22 states that a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. The scriptures are intimately practical and undeniably vest the three basic powers of society in the family, children, property, and inheritance. Today, through the secular education system, it is striking at children. Through the means of confiscatory taxation, the modern autonomous state is striking at property. And through the inheritance tax, it is striking at inheritance. In terms of modern law, the firstborn is the property of the messianic state. Before anyone can take anything in the inheritance, the state claims this share as the firstborn. By doing so, it is saying, We will provide for your aged. We will provide for the needy. We are the new family. This is not accidental. This is deliberately humanistic. It seeks to replace the biblical family with the state. There is a reason each of the three basic powers of a society are vested in the godly family, not the messianic state. The family, not the state, is designed as the basic social institution. When the state begins to provide welfare, it performs the duty of the family. The family is the basic welfare institution of society. Not only does the family support its children until approximately the age of 18, it also cares for its own elderly. Even the most basic forms of welfare provided by the family are of the utmost importance. This is because if the family will not perform the function, the state will do so. How? Through taxation. Any neglect of biblical responsibility immediately results in tyranny. This is the centrality and importance of the law of God. It protects liberty in the society. Interestingly, in the Soviet Union, it was considered to be counter-revolutionary activity to give charitably to someone. Why? Because when dependence is placed upon the family, it is removed from the state. If the family provides charity, one will be grateful to it instead of to the benevolence of the state. In summary, the key to the future and to godly power is the development of the Christian family. This entails taking back our own children from the state education programs. It entails using every lawful means to develop, grow, and maintain ownership of property. It entails knowing the ins and outs of the inheritance laws so they can be avoided at all costs. We must realize this. We are fighting against explicitly anti-Christian forces that would rob the godly family of its basic powers and transfer them to the autonomous God-hating state. The powers vested in the family are known and coveted by all revolutionaries against God's law word. God declares in his word that were the godly family is basic to a society in terms of the word of God and, and obeys his law and so exercises godly power, he will bless the family. He will bless it with both prosperity and long life. The keys to dominion and godly power are vested solely with the family 
and we must make wise use of them all in our attempt to bring all areas of life in a subjection to God and His law word. The following audio blog titled The Doctrine of the Atonement was written and recorded by Jonathan Character on January 29, 2017. In a series of studies in systematic theology, Dr. Rushdie penned a very important piece. It was titled, Infallibility, an Inescapable Concept. His basic premise was this, By denying the infallibility of God's word, man does not eradicate the concept, rather, he transfers it to the state or to the autonomous mind of man. In a similar way, you can deny the God of Scripture, but in doing so, you fail to do away with the concept of God. You simply make something else God. The same is true of the doctrine of atonement. It is an inescapable doctrine. It is not only a church doctrine or a theological co- or a theological concept, but a practical reality in everyday life. Atonement is a fact which stares every man in the face, wherever he is. Man cannot live in God's world and not face God's realities. If man rejects the atonement found in Christ, he will seek it elsewhere. Man, as a sinner, is in need of atonement. Quote, we all like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. End of quote. Isaiah 53, 6. Quote, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. End of quote. Isaiah 53, 10. Christ is our atonement, for, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had rebelled against God's covenant law. His law, a gracious gift to us, and undeserving people we spurned. Yet God, in faithfulness to his covenant, rescued us from death and destruction. He provided his only Son to be a sacrifice by which our guilt before the Father was atoned for. Our sins are forgiven because he makes atonement for us. But every sinner needs atonement. Every sinner has been created by God in his image. By being a sinner, he does not lose that image. True, he bears it imperfectly, but it is manifest in every decision he makes. He acts as a creature of God. He oftentimes, in the moments when his rebellion against God's law word is at its weakest point, upholds God's law. Everything in man witnesses to the fact that he is a sinner in need of atonement. But will he seek it in Christ? Definitely not. He must find it in the autonomy of himself or his institutions. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, once commented that the only way to eliminate religion was to make man feel guilty before God. Freud understood that man must turn to some source to eradicate his guilt. Therefore, Freud's suggestion was that, in order to eliminate religion, guilt be converted from a religious to a medical reality. As a medical reality, it could be dealt with by way of scientific practitioners. Of course, such scientific conditioning will not succeed simply because of the fact that man is God's creature rather than Freud's. Man requires God's atonement, not Freud's. Man is guilty before God, not society, as Freud contended. Every man must have atonement for his sin. Every atom of his being cries out for justification. The question is, thus, how will he achieve it? Because of the fact that sin and guilt require atonement, the modern age is one of sadomasochism. Sadomasochism 
is a combination of two concepts, sadism and masochism. Sadism is fundamentally when one man places his guilt upon others and punishes them accordingly. In such sadistic sexuality, the man will beat the woman with whom he is about to perform deviant sexual acts, saying, in a way, it is your fault that I am sinning. In masochism, the opposite is true. The masochist puts himself in a position to suffer. He will have himself beaten before he commits a sin, in a way saying, See, I have paid the price. I can now sin. Sadomasochism expresses itself in many different ways, and they are often not sexual. Sadomasochistic people repeat, in their own way, the ritual of the scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, 6-10, we have an account of the annual ritual which God had required as a means of atonement for his covenant people. Quote, And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. End of quote. Modern man rejects the Lamb of God who, quote, takes away the sins of the world. End of quote. Instead, he places the blame upon others and seeks for them to atone for his sin. Truly, this is inherent in original sin. Quote, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. End of quote. Adam blames God for his sin. He also blames Eve. This is the essence of sadomasochism. Remember this when society and the environment of the devil are blamed for man's sin. Modern man is enamored with fault finding, but the fault must not be in himself. Atonement must come through placing the blame, the responsibility upon another. Sadomasochistic society can be necessarily found where society rejects God. The Soviet Union, for example, was quite sadistic in its constant blame of the world, and particularly the capitalist West, for all its faults. We can also see masochistic tendencies in those who are continually putting themselves in a position to be fired from a job. Through masochism, man seeks atonement by bringing punishment upon himself. He is, in effect, saying to God, Haven't I suffered enough, Lord? But God is not mocked. Man's righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6, in the sight of God, and atonement for sin is only found through Christ and Christ alone. All too many churchmen do not understand what they mean when they say, Christ died for my sins. This is not some abstract philosophical idea. This is not just a theological truth. It is a reality. It affects the way we live, how we move and operate in the world. We must have a doctrine of the atonement rooted in Christ or we slip into the trap of sadomasochism. Without the atonement of Christ, there can be no peace, but only perpetual warfare. There can only be constant conflict as man is alternately sadistic and masochistic, blaming others for faults and abusing them, and blaming himself and abusing himself. Christ paid the price for sin and guilt through his atoning work. In him we are a new creation. We no longer act sadomasochistically. 
we no longer suffer under the burden of sin and death. We look at ourselves in the mirror and do not see our righteousness, but the perfect righteousness of Christ, with which we are clothed, and in which we will be presented before our Father as his children. Our understanding of the atoning work of Christ must make a difference in our life. Theology has social implications. You cannot have a free society with man in slavery to sin. He must first be freed from the bondage of sin, for... Quote, if the Son therefore make you free, you shall be free indeed. End of quote. Our freedom through Christ's atoning work is from sin and the burden of guilt. Let us strive to rebuild society in terms of his true liberty. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.